You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. I'm John Langer, and this is Communication Mixdown. To conjure up Big Brother from George Orwell's 1984 is surely by this time pretty much a cliché. But what if we're literally living day-to-day in that kind of world, more or less taking it for granted and not experiencing it as dystopian, but just a normal part of the way things are? Facial recognition technology is being rolled out across Australia with what some, including the Human Rights Commission, see as undue and unnecessary haste. Our guests this week take up some of the issues, one from a legal point of view and the other from a moral and ethical standpoint. Rick Saar is Adjunct Professor of Law and Criminal Justice at the University of South Australia, and I spoke to him by phone last week. Most people listening would know about facial recognition technology. What they may not know about is how widespread its rollout has been across Australia. Give us a few examples of where we might find this technology routinely at work and where it's operating where we wouldn't necessarily have expected it before. Well, the most obvious one, of course, is um, the electronic passport. And uh, you and I would now know, those of us who've been overseas, that As we leave Australia, we place our passport on a tray, Uh, we smile in a camera, and the door opens because what we've now done is given our facial recognition points uh, to see if they match the passport, and now that it does, they let me go through. I do not speak to anyone. I might see someone at customs and wave to them, but essentially the whole immigration process is now done by facial recognition. That's the most obvious one. Police have been using it for some time, um, not so obviously and not so widespread, uh, particularly in relation to anti-terrorism. Uh, I'm not sure how, how advanced we are here. Certainly right across Europe now, most people who are under watch, uh, particularly those who have been released from custody, would now have their facial recognition into a software such that if you want to try and catch someone or find out where he is, that's usually he, um, uh, you, you'll, you'll place these cameras uh, in, in certain spots uh, on the street or going through turnstiles at a, uh, a tube station and you can pick up exactly where that person is. So the facial recognition stuff is used essentially by immigration and by police. And to answer your question about where we don't normally see it, we're now hearing it. In fact, I hadn't heard this until I saw it in the media, that we now have 7-Eleven stores, if not others, using it in relation to their customers coming on premises. Why would 7-Eleven be using it? Is that something that uh, for security or is it something else? I've got no idea. Someone asked them that question when it went to air. 
and they said it's for <laughs> it's for customer feedback, whatever that means. Uh, you could probably argue it has something to do with a smiley face or whatever, but why you'd have a smiley face going in as opposed to a smiley face coming out. And, of course, facial recognition doesn't look at smiles anyway, so I've got no idea what they mean by that. I'd only say, in some respect, it has something to do with ensuring uh, that they've got a database of customers uh, which are accurate as opposed to a database of names and telephone numbers. Now, the reach and apparent depth of this rollout of facial recognition technology is setting off some alarm bells in various quarters, including the Human Rights Commission. Why the concern? The Human Rights Commission have said, essentially, we just don't know enough about this. The Human Rights Commission are watching the private sector, and of course they've been watching the public sector for a long time, but essentially government, immigration and police are governed by parliamentary controls. The Privacy Commission is saying, wait a minute, this is now going to the private sector. The private sector is required under the Privacy Act not to share data. I'm not quite sure what they're doing with this data or indeed whether or not this is data at all as defined by the legislation. So the Privacy Commission is saying, whoa, hold your horses. Let's just see what's going on here. The Privacy Act 1988 was essentially brought into being because of the data that was available at the time. The data that was available at the time was simply names and addresses and and maybe some Medicare numbers. We're now finding, what's that, uh, uh, gee, was 32 years later, that, of course, data not only includes that level of data, but also metadata from our telephones, from our, from our logins, from our computing, now that everyone has social media. It now, of course, includes surveillance devices of any sort, GPS. It also includes, now we're finding out in the private sector, facial recognition. So the privacy data collection uh, oversight by the Privacy Commissioner is being burgeoned, almost overburdened by the amount of data that's now available. If the private sector are getting into it, we need to catch up with this. That's all they're saying at the moment. Mm. Now, in terms of legal requirements, you mentioned we just had a chat about 7-Eleven, but in the use of facial recognition technology by, by private companies is a rather, I'll put it this way, it's a rather multi-layered affair. If you go to a Bunnings or a 7-Eleven, what are some of the things that are allowed and not allowed? Well, the, the, the general principle, which is, is not being challenged in any way, certainly not in relation to mask wearing just more recently, is that a private company on private land uh, has a duty to itself, to its employees, to other patrons who are coming onto the, onto the land to keep them safe. Uh, hence, uh, it would be quite acceptable, as we've talked about recently in relation to masks, for a Bunnings to in, in, in ensure, subject to anti-discrimination laws in relation to maybe to disability or, or something else, uh, to ensure that a person wears a mask coming onto the property. Now, you could extend that quite easily to say, well, by virtue of our security concerns in not wanting certain individuals to come onto our premises who may have a history of you know, terrorism or bombings or, or, or firearms offences, we don't want them on our property as well. But that begs the question, are these data being used by law enforcement as well? And we simply don't know that. Well, we should know that because, after all, it goes through the parliamentary debates. But as far as I know, it's only when the, the public sector, namely police, ask Bunnings, for example, or 7-Eleven for their data that those data are shared. So right at the outset, it does seem very strange to me that to use the 7-Eleven example, that 7-Eleven would say, well, we need facial recognition technology to keep our staff and our patrons safe. But they're only safe if they've got a database of people who are dangerous. So that's, that's a nonsense argument. 
Mm. Um, however, the, the general principle is that private property is is the subject of the person who owns that private property, and they can use whatever technology they believe keeps them safe. And the thing about sharing, are they allowed to share the images that they collect? No, they're not. Well, again, that's the, the best question. The Privacy Act in 1988 said that governments are not able to share government data between government departments without approval. So in other words, you can't just say, well, here's the health department, here's the police department, here's the customs department, let's just all share our data. No, the Privacy Act said you can only do that under strict controls, parliamentary controls, and that's working very well. In 2001, the Privacy Act was extended to, um, to, the, to, to the private sector to use the same sorts of rules. There's a limitation there. It's only extended to the private sector if you actually have got a turnover of more than $3 million. So small operators can do what they like with their data, one assumes. But leaving that, that question aside, let's say that the Privacy Act does insist that, uh, that private firms uh, do not share their data. Let's say that's the bottom line. Um, the question is, of course, is this data? I think we've decided it is. But again, the, the definition of data doesn't even include or didn't even include back in 2001 surveillance devices. So we're now looking at a whole new world of saying we've got data from facial recognition. The bottom line would be that no, Bunnings can't share that facial recognition with, with uh, 7-Eleven who can't share it with Coles, but it doesn't actually say that in absolute terms. And that's why the Privacy Commission is saying the law just simply needs to catch up. Look, I, I was thinking about uh, in, in preparing this interview with you, the relationship between facial recognition technology and COVID-19 as we're experiencing at the moment. We've already got a contact tracing app. Do you think the pandemic might be a push factor for deploying even more facial recognition technology? It could. Someone pointed out to me the other day in discussing this particular issue that once you've got a mask on, of course, which is COVID-19 inspired, uh, facial recognition just goes out the window. That's true. You just haven't got those points of, of collection on the face if you've got a facial mask. But leaving that question to one side, we are probably coming down that path, not so much from COVID-19, but probably coming down that path more with the push towards anti-terrorism to suggest that if this is an exercise, as I think it has been in the United States and the United Kingdom, of reducing the amount of terrorism, particularly those people who've been identified, they're arrested for some particular offence, they're then released, but we've now got a point of recognition on their face, that it's possible we can now keep our streets a bit safer from having terrorists roam those streets. The difficulty with putting this over to COVID-19 is that people actually don't believe that the COVID-safe app has been of any use whatsoever. So had it been a marvellous tool with 5 million people all pinging and pinging it and save Victoria from having uh, the latest meltdowns, we might have been a little bit more um, acceptable to thinking about a, uh, a, a, a facial recognition app as well that assisted us in relation to uh, reducing the power of the pandemic. But the COVID-safe app has been a bit of a disaster. So I don't think facial recognition is going to get any boost at all from COVID-19. That was Rick Sarr. He's adjunct professor of law and criminal justice at the University of South Australia. And a link to his article from the conversation around which our interview was based will be posted on the Communication Mixdown website. The Queen Victoria Women's Centre is calling all craftivists to join us and make a fuss. Make a Fuss is a crowdsourced, craftivist project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. 
Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. What happens when facial recognition technology becomes a way to mobilize perpetual surveillance over entire populations? The moral and ethical implications of this question are what our next guest on Communication Mixdown has been grappling with. Seth Lazar is a professor of philosophy at the Australian National University and leader of the Multidisciplinary Humanizing Machine Intelligence Research Project, which studies and develops democratically legitimate artificial intelligence systems. You make a distinction between technologies used for face recognition and technologies used for something called face surveillance. What's the difference and why is it important to understand this difference? So facial recognition is really just a way of describing the underlying technology here, uh, which is just the, the mathematical representation of human faces in such a way that they can be compared with databases and matched to them. And facial recognition described at that level can be put to many different uses, including, for example, you know, unlocking your phone if you've got a smartphone um, or unlocking border gates for automatic entry at borders. Um, but there's different ways of using facial recognition technologies. Um, in particular, if you're trying to match a target image with a, a large database of subjects of interest, um, if you're doing it in real time, if you're doing it across you know, large data streams, like, for example, all the CCTV TV cameras within the city and you're bringing that together, um, then you're starting to talk about something that we call face surveillance, uh, where in a way what happens is the face becomes a way of indexing widely divergent data streams so that you can form a comprehensive picture of a person's activity in society and public. And to our mind, um, face, face surveillance is the particular application of facial recognition technology that should cause us most moral and political concern. And where would we find face surveillance currently being deployed, either in Australia or elsewhere? Well, there's been lots of trial balloons floated, um, both in Australia and other Western countries. Probably in the UK, you would find the most sustained attempts to use face surveillance for law enforcement and to test out its use within Western democracies. Um, but the practice of face surveillance is certainly most advanced in China in particular in order to control the Uyghur population in Xinjiang province, uh, but also in a, a range of different experiments that are being run in cities um, around the, the technology of social credit um, that has been, been experimented with over recent years. And what's been the results of using face surveillance? I understand there's been a number of problems in the deployment of this technology. Well, there are certainly problems. I, I suppose it's worth starting out by pointing out that there are intended benefits to face surveillance. Usually these come down to law enforcement. Um, so that might mean capturing subjects of interest who are, if you like, on the run. Um, that's clearly a potential benefit. Um, and there are also the prospects of benefits in terms of um, intercepting people who might be intending to do broader populations harm. That was certainly the focus of the trials that were done um, by the South Wales Police in the UK 
uh, where they focused on using facial recognition technologies around football stadia, um, in part in order to identify potential hooligans who might have been intending to carry out harm. Now, as to the, um, the prospective problems of face surveillance, um, it's useful to kind of divide these up. Um, so some of them come from um, the likely errors that you're going to get. Um, and it's certainly true that uh, like all machine learning based technologies, there is a tendency to replicate and compound um, problems that are sort of obtained in the society that deploys the system. So these are in particular structural injustices that get um, encoded into the data sets on which these models are trained, but also into the broader set of practices that go into developing the model. Um, and as a result, unsurprisingly, we see that pretty much all facial uh, recognition algorithms uh, perform disparately well, depending on the demographic of the population. In particular, they perform worse for um, black faces than they do for black faces, and especially bad uh, for the faces of black women. This so is something that's been shown extensively by research by a number of um, black AI scientists in the US. So the, the technology has potential errors in picking up facial, uh, certain facial characteristics. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. And you know, this is true for any, um, like machine learning algorithms are always about sort of either assigning a probability that some, uh, some target, target subject exhibits a certain feature or by classifying them in a certain way. And there are always going to be error rates. Um, and what we notice, obviously, is that the error rates vary depending on the demographic of the person um, who's being, um, who, who is the data subject. Um, and we need to be really sort of attentive to the different moral significance of different kinds of errors. So what we're talking about here most commonly is that black women especially are more likely to be misidentified, to be declared a sort of declared a match to a face within the database when they, in fact, are not a match. Mm -hmm. This is a false positive. Now, false positives would be great if what, was, what you were using facial recognition for was handing out prizes or giving cash rewards. False positive would be very nice for you. Um, but usually, face surveillance is not used for those kinds of interventions. It's used for much more harmful interventions, like arresting somebody, um, holding them uh, in order to secure sort of further information about them. Uh, and we saw this quite recently where facial recognition um, uh, facial recognition technology was used to identify someone who was um, accused of robbing a service station in the U.S., um, where really there was no other evidence for that um, for that supposition than the facial recognition te technology. Plus, uh, one eyewitness sort of gave a, "Oh yes, maybe that that seems plausible," um, and that was the first instance that was reported in the Washington Post of somebody being actually. Um, remanded um, by the police. Mm. Now, you've, you've put the view, uh, I think it's your view, that face surveillance is intrinsically wrong. Uh, what were you getting at here? Yeah, so um, one way of looking at it is that face surveillance is harmful when it fails um, because the errors disproportionately affect um, people who are already vulnerable, who are already marginalised. Um, it's also harmful when it works. Now, part of that is to do with the intrinsic wrongness, but it's also worth just pointing out um, that at the end of the day, the ability to index all of the different data streams that we have, all of the different video streams that are now available 
to us as a society and just sort of pause and think about what kinds of data streams there are available to us. Obviously, there's the CCTV that exists in, in most, certainly in most Australian cities, um, albeit not to the same extent as it does, for example, in the UK. Um, but we're not, it's not just um, state-owned CCTV that can be integrated in this way. Many private enterprises also have CCTV that nowadays much more uses the infrastructure of the cloud. Many people have Amazon, uh, Amazon's Ring or Google's Nest home security cameras, all of which also go up to the cloud. There's an extraordinary amount of video being captured and processed, and facial recognition provides the ability to effectively index all of that data so that you can track an individual across all of it. And the ability to track people to see what they're doing, to predict what they're doing, fundamentally gives you an ability to control them as well, to influence their behavior, to anticipate it. Um, and that's a power that we should be very leery of anybody having in our society, especially, of course, government with its ability to use the information that it has in order to visit very severe harms on people, but also private companies. So I think even as far as the consequences go, it's not just a question of the errors that you get. It's also a question of when this technology works well, it lends itself to the kind of autocratic political control that should give us all pause, even if we don't believe that our government would take advantage of this particular power. Um, it's not a power that we should let them have. But as to the question of face surveillance being intrinsically wrong, that really comes down to the degree to which you think you have a right to control uh, your biometric information. So is it acceptable for, like, is it intrinsically acceptable for others to gather this information about you and index it in these ways for the purposes of making decisions about how to treat you? Um, and our view is that there is a basic right to control your biometric information that is not dissimilar to the basic right to control your body. Um, it's underived in that sense, you know, and this is something that for me, I'm, so my, one of my other hats is I'm a photographer. Um, and it's always been the case that whenever I've sort of taken someone's portrait, um, they always have a presumptive claim to control what I then go on to do with that portrait. I can't just go around taking pictures of people and sell them for my own benefit, for example. I need a model release. Um, that's the same kind of idea as applies here. There's something that we're doing when we're using CCTV to extract this information from people and process it in this way, is we're extracting something from them over which they have a presumptive claim. And it's not that that's never permissible. It can be permissible. For example, if you've done something that weakens the protection of your right to control your biometric information, for example, you've robbed a servo. Um, it's also a right that can be overridden. But it's important to say that in order to justify overriding rights, you need to be reasonably confident that you're going to achieve something of significant benefit. Uh, and our view is that for any given instance of infringing somebody's right to control their biometric information, um, the probability that you're actually going to achieve a, a benefit that's great enough to justify that is actually going to be fairly low. Now, you've called for a moratorium on the rollout of face surveillance technology in Australia. What would you like to see happen if a moratorium was put in place? So what we're really doing there is adding our voice to the calls from the Human Rights Commission um, in their recent discussion paper on technology and human rights um, for a moratorium. And what we're essentially looking for is um, for both states and the federal government to stop the trials of facial recognition, face surveillance technologies, um, to put them on hold 
until they've had the opportunity to regulate, to have a broad public discussion about what kind of a society we want to be, how we want to use technology for social benefit. Um, and in the interim, not sort of engage in the kind of surveillance creep that inevitably happens. What, what we think is going to happen in the absence of moratorium is that we'll just get more and more local trials that will gradually get rolled out and rolled up into more and more comprehensive efforts. And, you know, the current environment of the, the pandemic and the various lockdowns that are happening um, clearly creates an incentive to increase the measures of surveillance to which we're subject and reduces the constraints against doing so. Um, that could potentially be a, a rather toxic cocktail. And we could find ourselves waking up in a year or two um, with large-scale face surveillance just being um, sort of accepted as a fact of life, when really there's no reason why we have to accept that. Um, we have an opportunity now to press pause and really figure out the degree to which we want to allow for this kind of um, mass surveillance. That was Seth Lazar. He's Professor of Philosophy and heads up the Humanizing and Machine Intelligence Research Project at the Australian National University. That's all from Communication Mixed Down this week. A podcast of this show will be up shortly on the 3CR website. And a link to Seth Lazar's article from The Conversation, which led to our interview, will be posted there as well. Back again next week at 6. Let's go out with a track that could well be a theme song about facial recognition technology. Here's Rockwell and Someone's Watching Me. Watching me. Watching me. Watching me.